1: Hello, I'm Tim Cross, the Economist Science Correspondent, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly podcast on science and technology. The science section is slightly depleted this week as two of my colleagues have gone to America for the annual meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, which this year is taking place in Austin, in Texas. Joining me on the phone to talk about a few of the interesting things at the AAAS is the Economist Science Editor, Jeffrey Carr. So you've been at the AAAS, but for the benefit of listeners who haven't had the pleasure, what, what is it and why is it so fun to go to?
2: Well, it's an, it's an interesting organisation. It uh, started in the mid-19th century when uh, there was a lot less science around. And so all the American scientists got together and formed what was a national association. And, and since then, of course, the subjects become much, much bigger. And specialists have gone and formed their, uh, their own particular associations. But the AAAS carries on, and it carries on as a... a in particular, as an annual general science meeting, which moves from one North American city to another and is always held held in February. And it's a place where scientists come to uh, show off their wares and also a lot of journalists from around the world come to listen to what they're saying.
1: Okay, and has there been anything this year that's really impressed you or or blown you away?
2: Uh, One or two things. But the the, the thing that most uh, caught my fancy uh, was a... Study on something called intergenerational epigenesis, which looks at a new class of gene which produced things called microRNAs.
1: And this is sort of a good example of a general trend in biology, isn't it? Which is, we thought we knew how biology worked. It was fairly simple that you know, DNA uh, encoded genes and genes encoded proteins, and that was sort of all there was to it. But the more we dig in, the more we find that things aren't quite that simple.
2: Yes, that, that's absolutely right. Genes work by the DNA is copied into a molecule called RNA, which is very similar. And um, that goes off and does the jobs. And uh, what we thought the main job was, was um, to produce proteins. The RNA encoded the proteins. And it's, that is still uh, probably its main job. But there's also this second class of, uh, our, our, of, the, of gene where the RNA itself does the job. And it regulates the way that the proteins are made. So it controls the amount of protein. And that uh, essentially controls what sort of uh, cell is produced because the, the balance of proteins in the cell controls what the cell is.
1: And one of the things this lets us do is something that we thought you know, probably wasn't, wasn't possible with the traditional view of biology, which is this idea of epigenetics, where the regulation of which genes in your genome are switched on and switched off, seems to allow organisms to sort of pass on changes to their descendants much faster than they can through the traditional route of, you know, waiting for useful mutations to turn up. This sort of thing
2: happened. A famous example uh, was uh, in the Netherlands during and after the Second World War, where uh, there was a famine right at the end of the war because of the disruption of supplies. Many uh, women gave birth uh, to uh, children who were much smaller than normal, which is what you would expect because they were starving at the time that they were pregnant. But those children then, when they grew up, um, also gave birth to uh, smaller than normal children. So something had been picked up by the mothers or the fetuses of the mothers and passed on to the grandchildren. Now, that's intergenerational epigenesis. We don't know exactly how that one works, but lots of experiments have been done since then. Uh, which suggests uh, that it's caused by these the microRNAs and so the microRNA genes getting into the egg of the mother. Now, that's fine, but uh, you also see characteristics acquired by the father being
1: passed to his offspring, and that's much harder to understand. But that may now be changing, because one of the presentations, I think, addressed this question directly.
2: It did, absolutely, and that was the the, the one that I was most intrigued by in in, in the meeting.
1: And... The
2: uh, researcher involved is a, a young woman, she's still a graduate student, called Jennifer Chan, and her hypothesis was that you don't have to build the microRNAs into the sperm. They could actually just be attached to it shortly before sexual intercourse. And then when they arrive at the egg in the, the, the female's womb, the, they get into the egg, they fertilize it, and they take the RNAs with them so that the, the RNAs get into the egg as
1: well. And to discuss Ms. Chan's research in a bit more detail, we have her research supervisor, Dr. Tracy Bale, who is a Professor of Pharmacology at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. She joined us on the line. And we understand the mechanisms of this to some extent, I think, is that right? But what your, your um one of your students, Jennifer Chan, her work was about filling in some blanks uh, in part of the process that we don't yet understand.
0: So Jennifer Chan's thesis has really taken on or continued a project in the lab looking at the paternal uh, exposure across the lifespan to changes in the environment and how those experiences can alter these epigenetic marks in the male germ cell, which is a very novel way of thinking about intergenerational transmission.
1: So far she's done her work in mice, but I understand that you're starting to look at uh, humans specifically as well
0: for obvious reasons, uh, we can't do manipulations in humans,
1: Mm.
0: in order to understand the mechanisms, meaning how is it that, and when during the the course of uh, a male's lifespan, can stress in the environment influence his germ cells. So we utilize rodents, in this case mice, largely, because we are able to manipulate the genome of mice. Therefore, anything that we discover in terms of, oh, we think this gene might be important in this process, we can then do what's called transgenics. We can manipulate those specific genes and ask, are they really involved in this process? Once we have that information, which has been a large part of uh, Jennifer's thesis, we can then take that information into humans and ask if the same process occurs, knowing the genes that we're looking at and the influences, the time span, and the outcomes.
1: Well, thank you very much, Dr. Bale.
0: You're very welcome.
1: Next, there are millions of asteroids, hunks of rocks and minerals, sometimes hundreds of kilometres across and sometimes not much bigger than a boulder, in our solar system. But until fairly recently, scientists were less interested in them and more interested in the big things like planets. Now, though, that's changing. A slew of companies have been set up with the idea not just to look at asteroids, but perhaps even mine them for their resources. Our next guest has actually been to an asteroid. Well, almost. In 2015, Dr Shayna Gifford was one of four scientists sent on a simulated two-week mission to an asteroid inside a model spacecraft at NASA. She joins me on the line now. Dr Gifford, welcome.
3: Thank you so much.
1: So first of all, I should ask, what was your journey to the asteroid belt like?
3: When we first got into what is a a simulated uh, space capsule environment and sat down, they fired off the boosters and they have subwoofers under this thing, really, really large speakers. So when they fired the rocket sound, it actually vibrated the entire structure. And then on the screen, you see smoke and fire. And then, you know, after a while, the, the vibration sort of reaches its maximum and you go shooting off into space and you see the Earth recede. The entire capsule view out your window, quote unquote, which is a screen, tips and you see the Curvature of the Earth. You see the edge of the atmosphere meeting space. You uh, right yourself and you head towards the moon for a gravity assist. And you whip around the backside of the moon, which is the best view of the backside of the moon I've ever gotten. <laughs> <laughs> and then you pick up speed and you're out into space. And there is nothing but the star field for about a week. And then, quite terrifyingly, out of nowhere, hose this very large very shiny very long one of the most elongated objects in the solar system object and it's it's white because it's covered in this sort of a nickel powder it's bright on one side and pitch black on the other and you spend some amount of time depending on which mission you're on exploring it by flying this space vehicle which really exists called the mmseV multi-mission space exploration vehicle you fly around this asteroid you pick up bits of it you build robots and throw it out the window at it you collect samples and put them under microscopes. You do all kinds of things. and then you fly home.
1: I have to say you're you're really selling it. It sounds like NASA could sell tickets for this stuff
3: oh, you, this is this is like, Science Disneyland, and it is a, it is a, an absolute opportunity for all of those out there looking for a good investment. Please build the equivalent of Six Flags for science and start charging, because not only will you be doing a public service, you'll be making yourself
1: incredibly rich. There you go, you heard it first on Babbage. <laughs> but just to get back to the science briefly, the mission, I guess, is part of a general trend. You know, people are suddenly very interested in asteroids in a way that maybe they weren't before. Why is that? Do you think?
3: Well there's a couple of reasons. One has to do with our desire to expand into space. Now, you know, recently we've been living in space for 20 years quite comfortably, quite successfully, but not quite in space. The International Space Station is not really out there as far as you might think. It's, it's actually so close to the Earth that our atmosphere drags upon it.
1: Well, it's stuck in it what has, they call low Earth orbit, isn't it? About a hun- that's
3: right. It has to fire thrusters up. to keep from falling back. It's not independent. It's like those, you know, children who've gone to college. They're out there, but they're not quite on their own. so basically we've been living in space but quite close to earth so that we can send things up and down as needed right now occasionally they blow up and that's inconvenient but for the most part we can get things there if we need to but once you get past low earth orbit as you said on the way to the moon on the way to mars on the way to anywhere else it's quite difficult to get things there it's much easier to get the things you need in space already out there in microgravity and ship it to the station or the mars base than it is to launch it from earth it's much cheaper and more efficient so people have become interested in learning how to mine in space so that we can support our space colonies that's thing number one thing number two is someone did some math and they said okay the earth has only a certain amount of platinum and palladium which we need for all sorts of electronics it's mostly concentrated in asia south africa and it's it's rather rare but not in asteroids, necessarily. I mean, there as much as 1% of all the asteroids, the near-Earth asteroids, may have platinum. And it's really just sitting there, waiting so, for us to go pick it up.
1: And so the idea would literally be to fly there, mine it, and send it back to Earth.
3: Right. Now, there's a bit of a complication in the sense that because of some treaties we signed back in the 50s and 60s, no one can own anything in space. No one can own the moon. No one can own an asteroid. Mm. But once you pick something up and put it into a bag, now it's the proprietary...
1: <laughs> well, it, it becomes property, does it? Like, it like anything else.
3: Property. That's right. Now it's in the bag. So once you get there and embagonate, as it were, whatever bit of asteroid you want for whatever reason you want to, it's now yours. So now the space race is on. The gold rush to
1: the stars has begun. And the idea at the AAAS that, that was being sort of promoted is that this is leading almost to a new field called applied astronomy, which I have a little bit of a bone to pick with because you could say <laughs> astronomy was the original applied science, right? It, you know, you used it—used astronomy to figure out when to plant your crops, you used it to navigate. So, so I would say astronomy has always been applied.
3: I would say that astronomers were some of the most valuable members of society back before we had the watch, back before we had GPS. And uh, and then we weren't. And then suddenly there was instruments, you know, the scientific revolution really killed a number of jobs, mm. including applied astronomy. So you're right, historically, but the age is coming, a new dawn of A revival, a rebirth of when astronomers were essential in order to get where we're going. Because once again, the voyages are going into the unknown.
1: So the idea is astronomers would be to this new uh, sort of gold rush, what geologists were to the original gold rush. If you want to mine asteroids, you need astronomers to tell you which asteroids to mine and, and how?
3: That's about correct. To cut down your prospecting costs, as it were.
1: Okay, and how close do you think we are to this actually becoming a reality? Because people have been talking about this, you know, it it dates back to the science fiction I read when I was young, certainly. And it's been talked about for a while. Do you think it might actually start happening soon?
3: It could happen at any time especially because we're starting to open larger and larger telescopes. And those telescopes will take up the bulk of the really difficult science, leaving smaller, quote-unquote, telescopes available for businesses to purchase time on and to hire astronomers to go work at, to find the asteroids, tell them which ones have platinum and palladium, and help them figure out how to get there.
1: Well, Dr. Gifford, thank you very much.
3: You're very welcome. Thank you so much.
1: If you have any thoughts on epigenetics or the idea of mining asteroids for resources, we'd like to hear from you via email to radio@economist.com, or you can tweet us at economist radio. <laughs> Finally, how to grow a human organ? Demand for donated organs far exceeds supply, and for many many years, scientists have wondered whether it might be possible to get around this problem by growing human organs inside other sorts of animals. That was one of the topics discussed at the AAAS. And down the line is the economist science correspondent, Hal Hodson, to tell us more about it. Hi, Hal. Hi, Tim. So why is this technology needed? I mean, it sounds in a way like, like quite a big faff, right, to try and grow human organs in, in things that aren't humans.
4: It is a faff, and to, it's a faff to the extent that they haven't mastered it yet. But the reason it's important is that there are not enough organs to go around. Humans, when they die, don't tend to die in a way that preserves their organs at sufficient levels of quality for them to be transplanted into other people. There's currently somewhere in the region of 75,000 people in America waiting for an organ. And often they wait for several years and 20 of those people die on average every day while they're waiting. So the idea behind this technology is to try and solve that death bottleneck.
1: In a sense, this is a sort of unintended consequence of a good thing, isn't it? Because one problem, I think, is the world is, is getting safer. So there are fewer road traffic deaths, there are fewer industrial accidents, fewer people are dying young, essentially, which is what you want for, for organ donors. Yeah, that's true. So how exactly does this process work, or how will it work once once they've mastered it?
4: Well, it'll work the same way that it works now, just with some tweaks to make the whole thing you know, work clinically. But the basic idea is that. You start out with a fertilized egg, an embryo, of an animal that has roughly similar size to a human, a sheaf or a pig. And you take that egg and you use a biological tool called CRISPR to genetically engineer it. And you snip out the gene that controls for the development of the organ that you are interested in. So if you want to use this sheep or pig to grow a pancreas, you sniff out PDX1, which is the gene which controls pancreatic development in that animal. And what this means is that if you then let that embryo run on, it will grow up without a pancreas of its own. Once you've got that embryo with this base in its development for something else to come in, you then take human stem cells and inject them into the embryo the idea being that those stem cells will grow into the organ that you want but instead of sheep or pig cells that organ will now be made of human cells and crucially human cells that are genetically identical to the person that you want to transfer the organ into because you take the stem cells from the patient who wants the organ
1: So it sounds like you're almost saying that biology is so interchangeable when you get down to it that there's nothing really to stop you growing a human pancreas, a pancreas made of human cells inside a sheep and having it function pretty much as a sheep pancreas would.
4: Biology is interchangeable, but the degree of interchangeability depends on the genetic distance between the species you're trying to do this with. The problem comes when you're trying to get these human stem cells to differentiate into a much less familiar biological organism. And so there are some pretty big hurdles there in terms of making that work. It's kind of a question of
1: getting the mechanics right. You mentioned hurdles. Do we have any sense of how long it will take to jump those and when when this might actually become a clinical reality?
4: It's difficult to say because probably one of the biggest unknowns is what will happen with regulations. Currently, all of the fetuses, the the sort of fetuses that have a a, a human organ in them or human cells in in part of their organs, currently none of those get brought to term by any of the experimental animals that are in these labs.
1: Just so we're clear, the fetuses we're talking about, these are the uh, sheep or pig fetuses with the human organs in them. They're not human fetuses.
4: Yeah, that's right. Exactly. And currently, the sort of guidelines, they're not actually legal regulations, but the guidelines from the National Institute of Health in America says that those animal pregnancies should not be allowed to come to term. This is because of ethical concerns around things like if you put these human stem cells into these animals and they actually develop into living beings, that they might be human in some other way. And there again, we're into this odd line between the biology of different animals and what makes a human a human and a sheep a sheep.
1: Sounds like there's plenty to keep the uh, ethical review boards in business. Thanks very much, Hal. Thanks, Tim. And that's all for this edition of Babbage. Don't forget to pick up this week's copy of The Economist, or you can find us online at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist.